0: Hey, someone downtown! I am jumping on for another midweek podcast, and I'm out on a walk right now. And this is the joy of this time, where I'm getting better at podcasting and getting the actual proper platforms and things that I can just be podcasting from anywhere. I used to be stuck in the confines of of my wonderful office, and then I was able to do it at my house, and now I. I can be anywhere. I can be behind you right now. And I'm not. Well, yeah, I don't see anybody, so no, I'm not. But I am out, and I say that to let you know that you clearly hear some birds right now, because I'm in a fairly, you know, less populated part of a neighborhood where there's a bunch of trees. And one thing that we've all learned in the midst of social distancing is that birds pick up on audio. Like, you know, they're stinking speaking directly into the microphone. Like, you just have to open a window and all of a sudden be like, "Do you have a parakeet who's trying to kill you right now?" Because they're they're just really pertinent, and or not pertinent, really uh, prevalent. There you go. And so yeah, you might hear that, you might hear some other stuff that interrupts, but I that's that's why. So I'm I want to talk about this language I've been using a lot in private conversations with people, but I I want to make it and I think I even referenced it once on a Sunday maybe, but I want to bring it really plain because I think it's it's really it's reframing how I think about church, what it is to follow Jesus in, as the church. And it's this language of, uh, I, I didn't coin it. Uh, I guess if anyone coined it, uh, I will attribute it to Nate Dunleavy, who if you haven't heard my conversation with Nate on prophecy earlier this week, Nate just dropped some beautiful, beautiful stuff on there. So uh I the back half of it particularly, I listened to it again and I was just I was like this is awesome. <laughs> so uh yeah, uh I really highly encourage that. That is our teaching uh podcast for this week, which the digital gathering uh meditation size teaching will be based off of. But uh I talk about Nate a lot because he is uh, uh he's a pastor at some Northwest. He is a friend. Um, he's, you know, he's really just uh, someone who's who's discipled me in the faith, and and not always like in a really clean, neat spiritual mentor kind of way. Like there's, I get, I, I sometimes have people say like, oh man, I just need a need a mentor, you know, or I need a need to have a Paul feeding into me like Timothy, and I'm always like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. If that, uh, if that's how it really works, at least not today, like I had a pastor once tell me, Hey man, like there's no Yodas. We all want there to be Yodas. There's no Yodas. Just, <laughs> I mean, there are, but there's so few and far between that you can't wait for one. So it's like, if you want to go, you just gotta, you just gotta get what you can get from mentors as you can get them. Like if you can, if there's somebody you respect, get around them spend time with them, take them out to a meal. Um, sit next to them in a the room you know, if everybody goes out to dinner and they're there, just like find time near them and just ask them questions, talk to them you know, don't don't sit there and wait for them to sit there and just take you into their life because that may happen, but it may not and at the end of the day, like a lot of my my mentorship I've received from, from Nate, from uh, other men that uh, throughout my life, it's always looked more guerrilla warfare than like sitting down with intentional time or taking a walk that's happened sometimes i'm hugely grateful for it when i have uh, when it has happened i referenced uh pastor jim matthias at common ground uh in a previous episode and uh he was one who actually did take some time like that with me in my early uh, years of, of following jesus and that was beautiful and yeah again i just go back again and again and just Think of things of how you know things he directly taught me, but then also just so much of what I observed his life. Anyway, that's really another topic for or another time, another uh, thing for another day. Uh, just you know what you need more than a mentor. Uh, but you know, in the, some ways that that relates to our topic because yeah, this this term terminology that Nate coined is white collar ministry versus blue collar ministry, and he said I was talking with him once. It was a day after he preached at some downtown uh somewhat recently maybe in the Advent series when he preached and he said hey, do you want to grab lunch afterwards and I'm always like yes absolutely please you know as much time as much time as you want to, you you want to give me an eight, I will uh, uh I will give to you uh and I will sit there and keep you at it's on massive even though you're clearly tired and you want to go home and take a nap but you you agreed to this so I'm gonna keep you here <laughs> and uh so yeah we go grab Yats. And that was, I was still pretty in the the thick of one of my, 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 in my most recent depression anxiety cycle. And it was just like, I, I think that's why he offered it. He, he probably could tell. I and mean, he was just like, Mindy needs some time. I was like, Yes, I do. So we were going and we were talking. And we were all over the place. I mean, I was all over the place mentally at that time. I always am when I'm in those seasons. Um, I've, I've described it. It's like having a train, freight tra- train. In fact, that was the time when he told me about a mentor of his. Uh, who was a missionary in Germany who said, yeah, there's sometimes just depressions in ministry that feel like a freight train's running through your head. And um, yeah, that's, that's just what the season is. You can't focus on a thing. And I've experienced experientially found that to be true, but I was there with them and we were talking about a bunch of different stuff, including that. But then we also talked about, he was talking about just blue collar versus white collar ministry. Cause yeah, oh, I remember what it was. I, said to him i said yeah you know sometimes i i fear just this sense of like i'm not doing enough and i'm not you know i don't have enough like tangible active like organized vision and it's like you know i can't just spend time being with people and and you know getting cups of coffee and and meals and stuff and there's a lot more to full-time pastoral ministry than that but at the same time Nate stopped me and he said wait why not I was like well because I I remember one time early in my ministry I had a guy look at me and been like and he wasn't talking to me he was talking about to me a, a, about someone else he was just saying how they were asking this this person was asking him for support and he said I don't want to support you because I just think your ministry is just hanging out with people in coffee shops and he's like I'm not here to 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 support your hanging out in coffee shop ministry and I think I understand what he was talking about. Like, there's definitely a way in which you can just hang out with people in coffee shops and call it ministry and just be shooting the breeze with people. But at the same time, Nate stopped and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Getting coffee and meals with people is what ministry is. And he wasn't being glib. I mean, you know, if you know Nate, you know, he's, you can call him maybe a lot of things, but glib is not one of them. He was like, that's how you get access into people's life. And that's ultimately what ministry is, is getting access into people's life. And he said, he read an article, he'd read the uh, Atlantic article on pastor Tim Keller, who retired recently from uh, Redeemer Presbyterian church in Manhattan. And, you know, the Atlantic is not a Christian source and it was covering this pastor because they were just like recognizing like, you know, Love him or hate him, or love what he believes or hate what he believes. Like this pastor has had a huge impact on the city of New York and the world. And in the article in interview Tim Keller, and Keller talks about his experience both at Redeemer and Manhattan compared to his experience in rural Virginia, because not a lot of people know that for nine years before Tim Keller planted, redeemer manhattan he was a pastor in rural virginia and like he started that church with like just over 100 people or maybe like somewhere around 150 people and after nine years he grew it all the way to exactly what it was when he started like you know for the explosive growth and all the powerful things that he did uh in manhattan he started his years for about a decade of just basically pastoring a flock in rural virginia And he said it was dramatically different how he had to do ministry between those two contexts. He said that in Virginia, he said, it was very blue collar, a very blue collar context. People have blue collar jobs. They were just blue collar mentalities. He said there people didn't care to let you shepherd them or minister to them, uh, or, or no, sorry, let me take that back. Uh, it, it goes the other way. They didn't care to, to what you had to say. They didn't care to let you preach to them until they heard you shepherd them and they heard you minister to them. And, and you come along and live life and, and walk them through death and tragedy and marriage and birth and uh, miscarriages and, and infertility. And like, it's when you did that, then they would show up on Sundays to hear what you had to say. Because then, okay, you can preach to me. You, you have shown that you shepherd shepherded me. He said, Manhattan is the exact opposite. It was a white collar context. People had very white collar jobs and sensibilities. He said there, people wouldn't let you minister to them until they knew you could preach well. And so like there, it's like, no, I want to make sure you're an expert on something. Uh, that you, are, you have uh, enough accomplishment and enough sense of, of, of gravitas before you, I'll let you into the fact that my life is on fire right now. And so he said, yeah, like in, in one context, people listen to you because they know how much you love them. In the other context, uh, people love you because they love listening to you. And Keller wasn't really getting at this point, but Nate kind of took it forward and he said like, that gave me such a perfect paradigm for this something I've observed in the church my whole life but didn't know what to what words to put to it. And he called it uh you know blue collar and white collar context. It's like, you know, like that just it made me realize, oh, there are places where there's just a white collar context, a white collar context for church. And it is mainly focused around teaching sermons, developing content, having programs, um, you know, doing studies, doing things. And this is just like, you know, this is what you do in white collar context. And You do that because that's kind of what you expect, like have a vision, execute it. Whereas in blue-collar context, it's just showing up and walking through the hard things of life with people and the good things of life with people and everything in the mundane things of life with people. And Nate said the reason the white-collar context, particularly probably in the Western church, has thrived or has become kind of the dominant way most people see church is because the church has a hard time justifying its existence when things are going well for people and everything's good. When the economy's good, when health is good, when life is good, it's kind of hard to be like, why should we go to church? Why should we go to church? <laughs> and maybe it's just because it's what you do. It's culturally, you know, like God will get you if you don't or something. I mean, the reason that we got all this wealth and prosperity is because we went to church or something. The crazy things people believe in, in attached Bible verses to, But, No, it's like when life is good, you'll go to church, but you just kind of go just to kind of check it off or do something. But when life turns sideways, when the crap hits the fan, when you have a miscarriage, multiple, when you You don't know if you're ever going to have kids the way that you thought you were going to, when you get divorced when you realize the fear that you had warded off for so long is true uh you, you know, just you hit the moments where you're just like wow this is actually this is life <laughs> again another uh Nate-ism that i've always held on to is him saying hey you know suffering is the norm comfort is the exception that is life. You can n- not want to believe it's true, but just try to go out and live in spite of it. If you don't think that's true, um, it's because you're in your early twenties, most likely, or earlier. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, just much beyond that, definitely into the thirties, or if not, then the forties. It's just you give up any hope that that's not true. But there is a reality to it of just accepting. I mean, I talked about this a couple years back on on. Ash Wednesday, there was this, uh, a book, Richard Rohr, uh, oh gosh, it's this book on manhood, it's something to do, it has the word Adam, like Adam in the title, and it's a book on manhood, and in it, he talks in one chapter about all these different passages into manhood, and all these different cultures, and he said there was some, like, you know, he found a lot of them, and he found there were some certain things that a lot of cultures really tried to impress upon Men in their lives, and they were like these five he boiled them down into five statements. And he said, like this is when when boys absorbed these statements, they kind of stepped into manhood, and they were things like, life is hard. It's not about you. It's about loving and serving others. You're going to die. Um, there was others, but you kind of get the gist. that was. And I remember when I first coming across that and being like, man, there's something kind of like I've, I've resisted for a long time to go to, but like, there is something really beautiful about just sitting down and saying, life is hard. That's true. I've tried to live contrary to that for most of my life. And because of where I was born and, and the resources that were at my disposal, I was able to kind of pretend like that was true for a while, but then you just get to a point where like, man. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how many resources you have. Doesn't matter what you do. Life is hard. And so when that, when that reality comes true, I mean that's really the essence of, of Blue ministry Ministries. It's recognizing, yeah, that's true. And and that's not the end though. The that's actually an entry point into life being hard is what actually binds believers together in unity. I mean that's my wife brought up the example. Uh, from harry potter the first book of harry potter the the sorcerer or philosopher's stone depending on you know which country you got your copy from and in that first book you know harry and hermione and ron the three main characters in this trio of friends that first meet each other and don't like each other at least ron and and harry become friends but they don't like hermione they think she's annoying they think she's you know too much of a know-it-all they, They think that she's just, you know, a pest. And at one point, they find those, that three, uh, collection of three, find themselves in a bathroom in the castle uh, when a troll uh, has wandered in and has trapped them in the bathroom because they didn't realize that that was the case. They get stuck in there with it. And and in this case, trolls are not like, you know, little figurines with pink hair and uh, glitter belly buttons. But they are dangerous, horrific creatures that can kill you. And so they find themselves face to face with this deadly creature. And they, through somewhat of like cunning and, and work and some sheer dumb luck, like outsmart the troll and get away from it. And then at the end of the chapter, it says something to the effect of there's certain experiences that when you go through them with other people, you cannot help but becoming friends. And that gets at this idea that like, it's when life is hard, that's actually how you unify together. I mean, it's, it's the hard experiences, it's the ugly experiences that actually make you realize I need other people. I'm not independent. I'm interdependent on other people. And, and then I'm not dependent on people because like, I, I, I'm not just like, I have something to bring to the table too. I'm interdependent. That's why Acts 2 and Acts 4, these pictures of the church where all the believers are there and have everything together in common and are, are selling possessions to give to the poor and everyone is distributing the, the those who have need and and they're just breaking bread and fellowshipping and listening to the apostles teaching and growing. Those happen when when the church is being persecuted. When the church is this small little group of believers in a room that think they're gonna die. And then they start doing that. And yes, thousands are adding to their number because there's something compelling about this community that in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the fight of life are together and holding it together and they and they don't see your problem as well. Oh, that's just their problem. It sucks to be them. They're like, no, that's my problem because they're in my community. And I love them. And I'm going to bear their burdens. Everyone loves the language of bearing one another's burdens. It looks like bearing one another's burdens financially, emotionally, physically, with your time, with your energy. Stepping in and saying, how can I enter into your life? And that is blue collar ministry. At least in, in kind of the language that we're using today. That's what it looks like. Just saying like, hey, how do I just show up and start living intentionally towards communally with one another, like being, showing love. And this is the book of first John, right? I mean, you know, how can a person say they have love for their brother if they deny physical needs? And it doesn't always look like finding homeless people though. A lot of times it can, it can look like finding the people in your missional community, in your neighborhood, in your friend group. And everybody has needs. Everybody has needs, not just the homeless people. Everybody has needs. And so you get this sense where like you just start showing up and you start intrusively caring for people. And I've said that phrase before. What I mean is when people have needs, they don't know how to express it. Like, or you always say like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Uh, That means that you will never get called by people. (laughs) How you get called people is that long before you say, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Long before they let you know, you just show up and you're like, hey, I thought you might need this. Or I'm on my way over. Tell me if you don't want me to come. Because you just start meeting people's needs and start doing stuff. For you. I mean, how many times have you just, you didn't want to tell somebody what you needed. You just want somebody to be thinking of you proactively enough just to show up and do something that you couldn't even quite articulate yourself. And so that that's the sense of, of blue collar ministry. But the problem is that most of the American church right now is just entrenched in white-collar ministry, and actually, Nate got to a healthier place with this, because he was like, oh, you know, I finally had a word for white-collar ministry, these there's churches I didn't think were that great, but like, yeah, I can I see a need for that, I can see a reason for that, and so I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, all right, oh, yeah, they, these exist, and they have a purpose, and they have a category, I used to always just think they were, they were, you know, uh, just not really the church, or whatever, but like, now I can see there's something else, in the, and they're effective for some people, and I was, I'm more a little cynical towards it, I'm like, yeah, I think we've identified it, but I don't know that we've like said like that's like a cool lane that we can now run in. I'm like, oh, we're a blue collar church. We love we we walk through stuff with people, and we're a white collar church. We just you know teach from the pulpit and set up programs. But the problem is, is a lot of times in those contexts, everyone knows. At at SOMA, I'm a big believer that I, I love, teaching's great. Teaching is wonderful. Sermons. Bible studies, that's all great stuff, but it does not equal transformation. In order to equal transformation, you have to be taught something and then experience it, like actually have experiential, like uh, a time where you experience what you're actually being taught, and then you integrate it, and then you can enact it through your will. And so many times we just fill our minds with more and more and more teaching, and a transformed person we do not become because... We just are just hanging out and like, oh, I, I I learned something. I didn't incorporate in my life yet, but now I learned something else that was interesting because it's just collecting TED Talk like Bible teachings or Bible studies or ways to study the Bible, but not actually just like experientially learning it, integrating it into your life and then enacting it with your will. And that's hard. That takes the spirit. Holy cow. That takes the Holy Spirit. You can't do that on your own which is why people typically be like, I can't do it. That's too hard. Yes, it is too hard. That's why you need the spirit to do it. But because that's what white collar ministries and white collar churches mainly focus on, it's like all you get is just a bunch of teaching from the pulpit, but nobody knows the pastor. Nobody knows each other. Nobody spends time with each other. Nobody actually knows what's going on. No, If people have problems, like if you have like a financial problem, well, sign. we've got a program for that. We've got a benevolence program, which is a great thing to do. But if it's not met with actually people who love you and walk alongside you, and it just gives you money and it gives you fish for a day, but it doesn't teach you how to fish. It doesn't teach you how to walk through life. It doesn't, it doesn't help you get through the fact that your child is dead now. And you're going to walk through that with the rest of your life. And yeah, you got some money or you got some meals for a month, but that is a very sad band-aid on a cut artery or a lost limb. And and so, yeah, this is why I actually think the white-collar church might just let that be illegitimate. (laughs) It's because in order to actually transform people, they have to use blue-collar tactics. And so when you're like... When you are a white collar church, you're like sitting there, you're equipping from the stage, you're teaching. But when when people actually, when when stuff actually goes down, crap actually hits the fan, it's then you have to enter in, and maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a community group leader, but it's like they start forming community around a person who's hurting, or just a person like in the midst of some some personal crisis or some long uh, ongoing thing, and then they start using blue collar tactics, and then that's where transformation begins. And so like it's. <laughs> Uh, here you go, another Harry Potter reference. For my Harry Potter fans, you are getting your money's worth of zero dollars and zero cents today, and it's it's like Quidditch. Okay, if you don't read Harry Potter, they got this um, wizarding game called Quidditch, which you play on brooms, and there's all these uh, different kinds of. I guess, balls that are in play, you're like because you're flying up in the air and you have one ball that you're using to score, you know, pass around uh, kind of like a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a broom basketball game where you're like on, riding on a broom and you catch it, you pass it and you're trying to get it through the goals to score points. Uh, then you have these other balls that just come and their main purpose is just to knock you off your broom and, and you know, just. Beat the crap out of you, basically, and then you have the one ball that actually means everything, and it is the golden snitch. And the golden snitch, there's one player on each team that their whole objective is to look for the golden snitch and to catch the golden snitch. And the golden snitch goes away at the beginning, and it might come back any time. It can come back days later if it wants to. It has a will of its own, and it's tough to catch. And once once you catch it, the game's over, and that team gets 150 points. And so that's really what the game is. That's the game. The snitch is the game. <laughs> These seekers who are looking for the snitch and finding the snitch, that's the whole game. Then you have this side game going on with, yeah, quaffles trying to, that's the ball that you're trying to score through the hoops. And, and uh, you know, bludgers, is that the balls that are knocking you off? If, if I'm wrong, then Harry Potter fans are really mad about that because they get really anal about this stuff. But it, whatever those all are, you have all those going on. But that. That's not the game. That's not, that has nothing to do with the game. And because you score, every time you get through the hoop, you get like 10 points at a time. And, but the problem is, is whoever catches the snitch gets 150 points and the game ends. And people say, well, what you could do, what you could do is you could get so many points through the little hoops that, you know, psh, the other team catches the snitch and you still have a more than 150, uh, 50 points. So you win anyway, even though they caught the snitch. Yeah, here's here's the reality of of sports. Particularly because they they have like these national world they have a world cup in one of the books, uh the quidditch world cup. Nobody would ever end the game if they were losing. Nobody would ever end the game. That's so you, in the, the, the problem is, is in the book with the World Cup, the, the losing team actually is the one who does like they have the superior player on a worse team, but he actually catches the snitch and they're like, why did he do it? Why did he catch the snitch? They were losing. And they're like, well, he knew they were never going to come back. They just had to end the game. Nobody would ever do that. Have you ever watched sports? Have you ever watched the Super Bowl? Those guys try to win that game even when it is desperately out of their chances, which partially because... Well, the Patriots came back on the Falcons a couple years ago, so maybe there's another chance. But th- I, I'm talking about, like, another another Bowl with the Patriots and Seahawks, where the uh, Seahawks were about ready to <laughs> just had to, like, run the ball out to, to Marshawn Lynch and, and ice the game. And instead they throw a pass and Malcolm Butler, uh, of the Patriots intercepts it. And then now all of a sudden the Patriots have the ball and come back and score and win the game. And then they go up and there's like no time left. There's no time left. There's like 10 seconds left and the Seahawks have to tackle, uh, you know, they basically have to go up and just one of the New England Patriots has to decide to give them the ball and let them run the end zone in order for the. The Seahawks to win and every play they are busting through the line trying to make that happen they are they're getting in fights because they want to see if they can try to get the Patriots to mess up so that they can get like no one would ever in a professional sport lose on purpose and so uh, bringing that all back to Quidditch, that whole waffle business throwing balls through hoops all that that is just entertainment while we're waiting for the real game which is the snitch Now I'm going to bring that back to white-collar ministry. All these, the teaching, the programs, all that is just entertainment while we're waiting for the real game, which is when crap hits the fan and you actually have to love and walk alongside with people and shepherd people. And I'm not saying the professional pastors, I'm saying the whole church, all the saints equipped with work of ministry. And so, yeah, everyone walking alongside. So... Again, if for a white-collar church to actually step in and start doing this, or or, or to actually be effective, they have to start doing blue-collar ministries and, and quit playing the little quaffle game and actually start looking for this niche. Actually start caring for people. Actually start walking alongside people. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, A, you usually don't have to figure it out. Like, You just wait for life to go sideways on people. But even before life goes sideways on people, you really... Seek to know and love people, and that's that's the essence of. I, I call blue collar ministry. I just think that's Jesus's ministry, is seeking to. That's the church's ministry, seeking to really know and love people. You're like I don't know, I'm not a pastor. I like I, nobody in my life has you know had a major tragedy recently. How do I like do this blue collar ministry thing? Just get lunch or coffee with someone. I know you can't right now because of social distancing or whatever. Do it on Zoom or or take along phone call with someone or pick the people that you are going to see and really sit down, listen to them, listen to them, ask questions. I mean, do you know how powerfully moving it is when you know somebody actually is listening to you with their undivided attention and that they love you? Huh. Oh man. Pick up the phone for them, no matter when it is their tests I talk about this all the time because I think this is again something I learned from Nate something I've really seen put into practice and this actually is the essence of ministry people don't on a heart level believe they're actually loved and so when somebody shows up in, in, in our minds it's pretending that they love us eventually the longest time we don't give them anything hey what do you need nothing why? Because you won't you won't fall through. It'll just prove that I'm alone in this world. If I actually do something, and then you, I am vulnerable by telling you a need, and then you don't need it. But but eventually you'll stick around long enough. And like okay, maybe this person does love me. But here I'll show you when they don't love me. I'll give them a test. I will be rude to them. I, I will ask them for something that's so sacrificial of themselves. Surely they'll say, uh, I didn't mean that much. I, I when you, and I said you need anything, I didn't mean like anything. I meant like it's something that was convenient for me to do that. I enjoy doing. They'll give you a test because they're waiting for you to be like, Hmm, can't do that. And then they finally say to themselves, see, prove, proves it. Nobody loves me. I knew nobody loves me. I can just now go on my life and be lonely and die. But if you actually see someone's test, Oh, I, I'm showing up to love them. And now they're calling me at 4am to drive over a hundred miles to do something for them. And I have a project or something to deliver that I can now get up, drive there, drive back, and go straight into work or school or wherever and only have that enough time. And not even have time to finish. I will now take a worse grade or a worse opportunity to get my raise or whatever. But this is the test. And I'm going to pass it. I'm going to show this person how much I love them. I'm going to show them that they are worthy to be loved. I'm just going to show them they are worthy to have someone sacrifice for them. I'm going to show them they are, they are a beloved son or daughter of our King. And they are going to, in a small way, by me, be treated as such. And when you do that Holy cow! It just unlocks levels of things where people are now able to be like, yeah, okay, I now I can see you. I might actually love me, so now I'm gonna let you into what's actually going on in my life. I'm actually gonna let you know where I'm struggling, where I'm struggling to let people be near to me, love me. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna show you. Just all the places of sin that I didn't think I could confess to. And then as they do that, as you continue to show up and love them. And then, yes, there's going to be more tests because there's always multiple tests. And each <laughs> one gets you to a deeper level in their soul. And then you're going to start giving your test to them because the truth is, is you also don't really believe they'll love you. But eventually you're going to be weak and you're going to give a test to them and they're going to pass it. And man, this is how people are sharing all things in common and being knit together and are being unified as one body, being grown together with all its joints and ligaments and, and being connected to Christ who is their head and they look like Jesus. Uh, and that doesn't come from programs. You know, that doesn't come from teaching on the stage. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on teaching. It's been less now than I used to, mainly because I just—I think it's good. I just don't think it's the end all, be all. <laughs> and I think, you know, a, a much less fraction of my effort is worth the result that's going to yield versus all my effort to get very little results. Again, not nothing, just the start of transformation. And so, man, when you start looking at that, when you start look, looking at the difference between, like, do we want to be a white collar church or a blue collar church? <laughs> like, Is this even a question? Like (laughs) the white collar church, you know what that is? That's preseason football. Another sports analogy. I'm just racking up both fantasy and football analogies here. Fantasy sports and football sports. Uh, Preseason football, NFL. Those games don't mean anything. They mean nothing. I mean, I I for a very short time had Colts season tickets. Yes, I know. You know why? Because I'm in ministry no <laughs> uh i had them because my parents got them for me for a birthday gift like two years in a row and uh, it was just when Andrew Luck had come in Peyton Manning was out season tickets were available for like the first time since Peyton Manning started being Peyton Manning and so we got some up in the nosebleeds and they were awesome i just i would take a different person each time i took Sharon a couple times but i'd take a different person each time i could know them. i'd hang out with them it was awesome and um in that you you'll have to buy as a season ticket holder you have to buy all the preseason games because nobody wants those tickets and you can sell those things if you want to sell them you're gonna sell them for like 10 bucks to a guy who's bringing his kids who are like six and four uh because i i did i sold it to a guy i met him i gave him the tickets um this was back in the time when you could meet people randomly in public places and give them things and they just took them And I did that. I I gave him and he said, yeah, I'm taking my son. He's like, it's, you know, he just, he loves football, but I don't want to pay for him to go to a real game. He wouldn't sit through it. He wouldn't like it that much. And he's like, preseason games are great. Just get up, you're getting some, getting some food, you know, getting some, some pop for him, popcorn and hanging out. And it's way cheaper. You can get cheap tickets like this because preseason games don't matter. You can be the preseason champion. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Those games are like glorified practices. And my fear is, is this whole, like, let's build the biggest church with the most people listening to sermons and getting, going through programs is like becoming the preseason NFL champion. Awesome. Doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't actually transfer into disciples in Christ like this and the kingdom of God coming into our city or into our world. It's just like, oh, wow, you wow! look at those numbers. Look at those numbers. Look how many yards you ran for in a preseason game. Look how many people you got to show up and listen to something that didn't transform them. In fact, you got a 90% turnover rate of churning and burning through people. And so you just churn and burn, get them to volunteer for as long as you can possibly suck life out of them. And then when their life goes sideways, it's like, oh, sorry about that. Here's a program. Here's another guy who can handle that, maybe. Here's another church that can handle that. We're just about getting this big preseason championship, and I get it. I get it's all in this. It's like, well, you don't understand. People hear the gospel through that. Yeah, they hear the gospel, but they don't actually get shepherded in the gospel with it. They don't actually have the gospel applied to their suffering, their pain, their sin, their reality. Nobody knows anybody well enough to actually get there. So, yeah, okay, they heard the gospel. That's great. I I want people to hear the gospel, and then I want them to be discipled into the gospel. I don't want to create converts. The Great Commission is not, <laughs> it is not, you know, go out into the world, and like, oh, I'll be with you, and, and I have the authority, all authority is given unto me. And so now go and make converts of every tongue, tribe, and nation. No, it's make disciples of every tongue, tribe and nation, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Do you know how you make disciples? Disciples is the same root word as discipline. It's the same word as growth and forming and shaping yourself into Jesus. Not just people who have heard the gospel and would check a box on a survey to say, yes, I've heard it. And so I've started to call White Collar Ministry just Gospel Initiation Church. It initiates the conversation and that's a great thing to do. It's just woefully short of Christ-likeness. It's woefully short of what the church is called to be. It's woefully short of what will be compelling to a society that is continually seeing the church as a marginalized entity because who cares about our teachings and our programs when life is hard? It's not about you. You're going to die. Suffering is normative. Comfort is the exception i said the teaching when you get to that moment i mean people can't come to me for the years and like you know i really like your teaching i really appreciate it that's why we like it here so much i always know people say that to me there's a clock on how long they'll be here i mean if that's the only reason they they end up staying because i can name i could i could list out enough names to fit on the great wall of china well not quite i mean that's crazy that's crazy arrogant to me to think (laughs) <laughs> but I could know a ton of names of people who have said that to me and are gone from Selma. Why? Because when life, when you realize the reality that life is hard, you're going to die. Suffering is the norm and, and comfort is the exception. My sermons do crap for you. They do crap for you. You don't care. You want to be loved by someone, you want someone to walk alongside you, to know you, to to, to stand in the gap to sit up with you, to wake up with you, to have the phone on all times. And here's the reality. In order to have this as being something you can do, you have to have it be done to you. I really believe that's true. I think the only way you can actually grow in this is to have this be done to you. Like you have to have someone love you. You can only give what you've received. I mean that was true for me for the longest time. I was just like, man, I don't know. I, like you I hear stuff about loving, I'm like, well, I'll just keep working on teaching because that I can control that. I can make that a smart goal. I can make it, you know, specific and measurable, and, you know, time bound, and realistic, and you know, accurate. was the I don't care. I always forget. Um, um, that's definitely accurate. <laughs> um, yeah, like I can control teaching. Like that's something I can put. I can do an input goal into. Like I can focus on my level of input and then I can let the outcome be what it is but you know what you can't really control well is how much you love people I mean you can actually control it really well but you just don't know how to do it nobody in the church typically knows how to do it and so you just keep being like well here's a book (laughs) or here's a podcast but then when I actually had someone love me and for me and my wife it was Nate and Deb Dunn Loving and it was. I talked about them all the time because they were the first people that just loved us. And they were willing to sacrifice themselves for us. And they were willing to recognize our tests, And they were willing to pass them. Nate picked up every call I made to him for years. And I would call him every Friday being like, I don't know what to say anymore, man. I'm out of teaching. I'm out of sermons. I'm out of this. I don't know what to do. And he would patiently and painstakingly walk through with me what I was thinking. He'd help me organize my thoughts. He'd call, he'd call me back on Saturday and check in. And he did not put his phone, put a voicemail. If he did not pick up, he texts me within a minutes. Say, hey, can I call that? I'm, I'm in a meeting right now or I'm talking to this person right now. Can I call you at this time? And yeah, he just would show up. If I mean, he just said, like, let me know when you need me. I will be there. And it wasn't just to let me know because he knows that. He would also just show up and sometimes, hey, do you need me? I'm on my way. Do you need me? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm scared now because I'm afraid. Like, I know, I know you can't actually love me. Like, and so now you're meeting a need, and I don't know what your angle is. Are you just trying to control me? Are you trying to, you know, to hoodwink me? Are you trying to, trying to make me think like you actually love me when you? I, I know you don't. Nobody does. I mean, you love the Facebook version of me, but if I actually showed you the parts that I had it out, you'll curse me and. And walk away. Everybody does eventually. And then he didn't. And he showed up. He passed my tests. He started making me believe, holy cow, I actually am loved. In fact, I'm not just loved by Nate and Deb. That's, that's great and good and well. But their love is just a reflection of, of the eternal God and king of the universe's love for me. They're just doing it because they have been loved by someone who has been loved by someone who has been loved by someone who has been loved by someone who was loved, loved, loved by Jesus. Like, Jesus started off with his disciples, and he said, now go love people like that. You want people to know that you're, my, that you're my disciples? They'll see it in how you love one another. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second is like it, meaning it's equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, I was talking about this the other day. And Sharon was just like, if, if it's just about loving people, why isn't that just in the Bible? Uh, I probably shouldn't say that because that's not something you should say if you know the Bible, and she really does. I, we were just in, we are in a completely different context. And it's like, wait, wait, like, and then I quote all those things. I'm like, I think it is. And she's like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> it was a brain fart moment. So Yeah. Nate and Deb, they did that for us. They walked alongside me in my, my anxiety and my depression. They showed me I wasn't alone. They let me show up, and then they, they let me they let me choose when I left. Let, let me choose when it was time for me to go home, because I needed every ounce of the strength they had to give me that in those days. And when I did things that were stupid or or sinful. They forgave me. They encouraged me. They restored me. And then once somebody's done that to you, you just start looking around. You just start seeing it. You just start seeing other people and you're like, I want to do that because somebody's done that for me. Who did that for them? Who did that for them? Who, Jesus did that for them. Eventually he started this whole thing and I just like see it. And I see them and I want to show them they are loved. I want to show them they are worthy of love. I want to meet their needs. I want to sacrifice on their behalf. Why? Because someone did it for me and it's so addictive. I got to give it out. So yeah, you can't really do this unless you receive it. But if you I just I'm saying, I guess to all our people or anybody, if you've received this at any level, can you start just at least maybe sitting before Jesus and letting him love you? Because he's still his spirit is alive and well and he can love you in this way. But man, it is beautiful when the person does it. But if I, I versus waiting for the person to come do it for you, you do it for someone else. You sacrifice for them. You blister your knees in prayer for them. You show up for them. Do for one that what you want to do for the many. And then pick up another. And keep going until you think you're out of capacity. And then pick up another. And you're like, wow, that sounds impossible. My life is impossible right now. All of that is just the preseason football championships. I mean, some of it's good. So you gotta you gotta earn money yeah you gotta eat you gotta sleep you gotta you gotta work out every once in a while you gotta you gotta rest you gotta enjoy and you can do all that and this at the same time because yeah you're busy with all those other little projects but you know what most of that's just gonna burn up but this is building bricks in an eternal kingdom I think about it all the time I mean I'm always challenged with the demonic attack of like, yeah, but like, what are you really doing in the world? And like, are you kidding? I'm building a part of the kingdom. That's so much better than speaking at conferences, writing books. <laughs> that stuff's going to burn. And yeah, some good fruit will come of it. Most of it's going to burn. Most of it's just a white collar footage game. But actually walking alongside people. Ooh. Well, now that's something I can give my life. And so, yeah, that's my prayer, that we'd be a church of people. we be a blue-collar church. I'm done with the white-collar preseason football championship which game. I just would be, I've been kind of repetitive on this idea, but I just think i was just drilling at home. This is what I want to be. This is what I want someone downtown to be. This is what I want all the someone churches to be. But, I mean, this is what I want the American church to be. <laughs> I mean, there's no better time in the world to start than right now in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of racial tensions that are horrific and the injustices that are going on. I mean, we could fight back in a lot of ways. Let's fight back the dark with the light. And yes, speak up and call the dark the dark, call injustice injustice, say what's true, and then fight back with light, with love, with unity, with joy. You want to overcome hate, love somebody really, really well. All right. I think that's it.